And I would invite you to turn this morning to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. 1 Samuel 4, 12 to 22. This will be the last sermon in 1 Samuel for a while. Uh, like I said, uh, before the service started, next week, Pastor Joel from Heart City, PCA, and I are going to be switching places. Uh, and then, uh, because I want to spend some time, uh, frankly, I, I think I need to spend some time in spiritual refreshment, and particularly spiritual reflection, spending some time reading and thinking and praying about where the Lord might be leading us in the rest of the year. And I want some time to prepare for everything that's going to start up again in August. Uh, I've decided I'm basically going to re-preach, more or less, a few old sermons that I think are worth rehearing. Uh, these sermons won't be part of a series because everyone is traveling. Uh, but it sort of dawned on me, I've been preaching every Sunday for 15 years. There's got to be at least four sermons in there that are kind of worth rehearing, right? Probably. And I'll tell you what, when I was looking at them, I was like, maybe there's not. Uh, but I think the Lord will, I think the Lord will, will bless it. Um, but for today, we're going to finish First, Cham First Samuel chapter 4. Uh, when we looked at the first half of chapter 4 last week, we talked about how the different, there are different seasons in our life with God and how Israel had tried to force God to move from a season of waiting to a season of action. And we saw that that went very badly. Israel suffered two very devastating losses, which included the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant. And that loss produces, here in our section in chapter 4, what the 16th century monk John of the Cross called so poetically, a dark night of the soul. And while I want to talk about this in greater detail uh, in just a second, just to say this now, a dark night of the soul is when you think that you are completely abandoned by Jesus. Uh, it's a time of, of fear, of, of great fear, really, great sadness and, and hopelessness. These dark nights of the soul don't happen frequently in Scripture, but they are common enough that it's important for us to think about them. Uh, Job very famously has a dark night of the soul in the book of Job. The psalmist in Psalm 88 has one. The prophet Jeremiah has a couple in his lifetime. In fact, the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah wrote, might well be described as a dark night of the soul. Uh, even Paul had a dark night of the soul. He talks about it a little in 2 Corinthians when he says that he and his companions were under such duress that they despaired of life itself. And then there's a dark night of the soul in our chapter this morning. And particularly, you'll see that in Eli's daughter-in-law, who experiences it right before she dies after giving birth. And that's what I want to look at with you very particularly. Uh, and then I want to think with you about what God's purposes are for a dark night of the soul. So that if we ever enter one, or if we ever know someone who is in one, we can move ourselves or help them move into a deeper knowledge of Jesus through it, and so move from hopelessness to hopefulness. In other words, I want to think about how we can help each other by God's grace find gospel hope and light even in the darkest times of despair. And so let's read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. We'll pray, and then we'll look, about, look at this together. This picks up where we left off last week. The ark has just been captured. Israel, Israel has just been defeated. Chapter 4, verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. 
When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured. This father reading of what I think can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, and it's a light to our path. It bears in it the very... Um, words of God which spoke light into being. And Lord, we want that same light to shine now in our hearts and in our minds so that we would see you, see your ways in the world, see your presence, and, uh, and know you more and leave here more transformed by your presence among us. So Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe and to rest in your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, before we look at our passage specifically, I want to take a second to think about the difference between a dark night of the soul and what I would call a difficult season. Uh, both because I think it will help us better understand what's going on in our text, and because also I hope it will help us understand what may be going on in our lives or maybe in someone else's life. Uh, so what's the difference between a dark night of the soul and a difficult season? Well, in a difficult season, you're going through things that are hard. You're going through things that are painful. There's tears, there's struggles, there's sadness. But at the same time, you know somewhere inside of you that this season will come to an end. You know it won't always be this hard. You know it won't always be this sad. There's a sense that there is an ending to this. You may not know when, you may not know how, but you again, you know somewhere deep inside of you that there is in fact an ending, one is coming. So in a difficult season, you know there's an ending and also in a difficult season, you know that there's hope because you know, again, somewhere deep inside of you that Jesus is with you, even if you aren't exactly sure how he's with you. In difficult seasons, even though you might struggle to pray, 
and prayer might come less frequently than you would want, you know that Jesus hears you when you pray. Uh, you know that he's responding to you. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't understand it, you at least know to look for it. Uh, in a difficult season, you see you are not hopeless because you know somewhere, again, deep down inside, that Jesus is with you and that there will be an end to this and that Jesus will some way, somehow, sometime bring good out of it. Uh, in Psalm 30, the psalmist has this great line, Though weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. Uh, that's a prayer of someone who is in a difficult season. They're saying this is hard, but there's an end. This is sad, but that joy is coming. God is going to work redemptively in this situation. Uh, which isn't to say that a difficult season is short and dark nights of the soul are long. That's just not true. Uh, difficult seasons can include things like burnout, which can last a long time. Uh, different kinds of experiences of depression, mourning, uh, long, hard slogs through relational breakdowns or times of poverty or physical difficulty. Difficult seasons can last for months. They can last for years. But within those difficult seasons, as tired as you get, as frustrated as you may be, as sad as you may be, you know somewhere that Jesus is with you and that this will end because you know Jesus is with you and that therefore joy is coming. A dark night of the soul is just different. Because in a dark night of the soul, you feel totally bereft of Jesus' presence and help. In a dark night of the soul, you've lost the sense that you know who Jesus is, that you know where he is, and that you know what he's doing. You've lost the sense that Jesus is with you, that he's for you, that he's near you. And consequently, you don't see an end to this terrible time. In fact, you don't believe that there will ever be an end. Uh, and you have no hope that God will ever use this for good because it feels like the light of Christ's grace and goodness has been turned off for you. And the best place to see this, I think, is in Psalm 88, which I believe is definitional for a dark night of the soul. Uh, psalm 88 starts out like a normal psalm. I'm going to read verse 1 to you. O Lord, God of my salvation... I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come to you. Incline your ear to my cry. So that sounds normal, right? It sounds like a prayer in a difficult season. God, you're my salvation. I'm crying out to you. Turn your head. Look at me. Answer me. But as the psalm goes on, it takes a, a much different turn than normal. So he says things like this in verse 6 of Psalm 80. He says, you, God, have put me in the depths of of the pit in the regions that are dark and deep. God, you've put me in a hole and you've closed the light off. I think this is where the, one of the places where the phrase, the dark night of the soul originates from for John of the cross. He says in verse eight, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Why is his vision darkened with sadness? Why does he feel like he's been placed in a pit and everything's been closed over? It's because no matter how often he prays, he feels like God throws him away. This is verses 12 and 13. 
Listen to this. He says, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you throw me away? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist feels like whenever he draws near to God, God pushes him away. Whenever he gets in front of God's face, God turns around and refuses to look at him every time. And then he ends Psalm 88 with one of the most haunting lines in the entire Bible. I still remember the first time uh, I read this when I was in co college, in the middle of class, in the goosebumps. He ends it with, the darkness is my only friend. Can the Bible talk like that? Well, yeah, I mean, it is. This is the dark night of the soul. The psalmist is hopeless because his experience of God, his knowledge of God, it's turned upside down. He believes the God of steadfast love has thrown him away. He believes the God who says he turns his face to hear the cries of his people always turns away from him and doesn't look at him. Now, he's in darkness. He's in despair. So do you see here the difference between a dark night of the soul and a difficult season? A difficult season can be very hard. It can be very long. But you know that even in the confusion and the frustration, Jesus is there in some way, with you in some way. He's listening to you. Even if you don't understand how, you know that. But in a dark night of the soul, you feel without hope because Jesus isn't with, with you, you believe. He isn't who you thought he was. You believe he's left you. You believe he's thrown you away. He's pushed you out of his presence and said, no more. You can't come here anymore. Now, with that distinction... Let's look at our passage and the dark night of the soul that we see in it. So the scene is set for us when, in verse 12, this man from the tribe of Benjamin runs back to Shiloh, which is where uh, the tabernacle of God was. It's where the ark of God had come from. And he says he, he gets there with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And so torn clothes and dirt on the head were common ways of showing mourning and grief, but deep mourning and, and deep grief. Torn clothes and dirt on the head isn't something that happened when someone was just sad. Uh, it's something that was done to show that they had entered into an extended time of mourning, grieving, and sorrow. Uh, it's what people did when uh, a relative that they were close to died, or when they realized that they had been sinning grievously against Jesus and against their neighbor, and they were grieving the death and the hardship that their sins had brought on. And as this man arrives, you can see the grief spreading out into the larger community of Israel. In verse 13, we're told that when this man told his story, all the city cried out. Right? So now all of Israel is in Shiloh anyway, is joining him in weeping and in mourning. And uh, then the story turns to focus on Eli, who we're told back in verse 13 is afraid for the ark of God. And as we've talked about a bunch at this point in his life, Israel is, excuse me, Eli is old. He's now totally blind, but he had enough spiritual insight to know that this was a foolish plan that Israel's leaders had concocted. And so Eli hears this crying, this weeping and wailing, and he wants to know the extent of the loss. When the man knows that Eli is asking, he comes over and he tells him in verse 17, I'm going to read here in verse 17. He tells Israel, Eli, excuse me, he tells Eli, Israel fled before the Philistines. 
And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. There's actually a lot packed in here. Uh, let me just point out a couple of things quickly. First, I just want to point out uh, that here we see the judgment God announced to Eli played out. Right? God had told Eli that his house was under judgment and that this was a and that as a sign of that judgment, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die in the same day. I think it's also important for us to remember that we talked about uh, the lessons here in 1 Samuel about how this judgment is ultimately redemptive and how Eli understood that and how it's something that is hard, but God uses judgment to bring salvation. He uh, wounds in order to heal. He kills in order to make alive. So this judgment is ultimately redemptive. And that's important because notice that uh, Eli doesn't fall over and die when his, he's told his two sons are dead. He isn't shocked by that news. I'm sure he was deeply sad by that news. He was clearly sad earlier on in the text when God announced it, but he isn't shocked by it. He's not horrified by it, but he is when the ark of God, when he's told the ark of God was captured. So the ark of God was a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of his salvation. It's a symbol of his power to save. It represented all the important characteristics of God that Israel held so dear and that we hold so dear. It symbolized God's power, his mercy, his grace, his salvation, his nearness, his listening ear, his word of life, and freedom that he gave to his people. And all these things are summed up in one Hebrew word, which shows up again over and over in our passage. Maybe you noticed it. Glory. Glory. Or the shining light of Jesus's saving, powerful, unbreakable, unstoppable mercy. The loss of the symbol of God's glory was not something Eli was prepared for. For Eli, as you can clearly see, uh, and, and his daughter-in-law, the loss of the ark felt like God turning the light of his grace off for his people. It was like the sudden death of God's presence in Eli's life and in his family's life and in the life of the church and of God's people. And then there's a pun in the description of Eli. It's a dark pun, it's a, it's a macabre pun, that I think is actually meant to describe this. The word for heavy and the word for glory in Hebrew are the same word. The death of the heavy Eli is like a picture of the death of God's glory to Israel. And you can see this feeling of loss and death then culminate in Eli's daughter-in-law, who when she hears about everything that's happened, and especially when she hears the Ark of God has been captured, the grief and sorrow hit her so intensely that she goes into labor. Uh, I'm not a doctor, but I do know from reliable sources that emotional trauma can trigger early labor. And so she has this traumatic birth brought on by the emotional storm of grief and despair that has descended upon her so rapidly. And after her birth, but just before her death, in verse 20, we're told, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. Right? They try to offer her 
hope and happiness as she's coming to the end of her life. Now, if this were simply a difficult season, she would grab onto that hope in, in some way. She would embrace that hope in some way. Maybe it would be something as extraordinary as, I know that my Redeemer lives, right? That's like Job says that. Or maybe it would be something as small as, Amen, or I trust the Lord, or something like that. But that's not what happens. We're told in the middle of verse 20, but she did not answer or pay attention. She's no longer focused on the outside world. As we all know grief can do, it has driven her inside of herself. And we're, we're told that she's driven inside of, of the sorrow and, and, and brokenness and fear that she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory had departed from Israel. Uh, she does not have hope. She does not see Jesus. She does not see an end to this. The glory has departed from Israel. Uh, so Ichabod's name, um, Chabad, means glory. The I prefix is actually a cry of woe or sadness or pain. You know how in comic books uh, people write A-H-H-H-H-H-H? Ah! To symbolize someone screaming in pain? That's Ichabod's name. Ah! Glory has gone from God's people. It's her way of saying, the darkness is my only friend. And by naming her child this name, right, this person who's going to continue to live on and walk and have however many days among God's people, what she's saying in that act is that the darkness is going to remain the only friend of God's people forever. Like, this is a dark night of the soul. And while we're here, before moving on to God's purposes for a dark night of the soul, I think it's good for us to see the kinds of things that can bring these on. Because uh, that way, if people we love experience these things, we can be watching out for dark nights of the soul in their lives. So we want to help each other, don't we? Uh, we want to bear each other's burdens. We want to help each other see the light of the gospel in the darkest places and times. And so just speaking generally here, dark nights of the soul can be brought on, brought on by great personal loss. Uh, Israel lost a great leader, flawed, but still great in Eli. And of course, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law lost her husband and her kind father-in-law. But it isn't only brought on by death. Dark nights of the soul can be brought on by the collapse of a business you've spent years building or by a sudden entrance into poverty or by a long, hard slog through illness. It can be brought on by divorce or by the breaking of friendships. It can be brought on by the sudden loss of identity. Uh, someone thinks of himself or herself as strongly, strong, competent, and godly and then faces a situation where they are forced to see themselves as weak, unskilled, and not as godly as they thought they were. But remember, what changes these situations from a difficult season to a dark night of the soul, like we see in Eli's daughter-in-law, is the loss of hope in Jesus' glorious presence and his saving power and his transforming help in the midst of these really difficult times. And so it's good for us to be aware that whenever these kinds of things are happening, there can come with them a loss of hope in Jesus's presence and love and redemptive purposes in this particular time. Uh, and we want to help people regain their hope if they've lost it. We want to keep it if we can. And to do that, we need to know the kinds of things that Jesus uses these dark nights to accomplish. And uh, here I'm going to kind of just 
think about the Bible more generally because uh, you don't see that particularly in our passage this morning, but I didn't want to end the sermon on like a bummer note. I want to go through how like, God brings goodness through all this. So um, while we don't have the time or the stamina to think about all the ways he uses it, you know, if you have the stamina for me to preach through the book of Job right now, then we can talk about everything. But since we don't, uh, we'll talk about two things briefly that I think are really helpful in getting us through dark nights or helping get other people through them. First, uh, in a dark night of the soul, it teaches us to really seek for Jesus. It teaches us to forsake all other helps, all other helpers, whatever idols we have in our life, whatever misconceptions of Jesus we have, whatever uh, idolatrous images of the Lord we built up. It teaches us to throw those away and say these must be useless and to seek for Jesus and know him as he really is. Now, to go back to Eli for a moment, not only is his death, I think, a picture of Israel's experience of losing the glory of the ark, I think his blindness is also a picture of Israel's spiritual blindness. When the ark left Israel, for them, everything had gone dark. Uh, they were no longer able to see the Lord or what he was doing. But that isn't because God had actually left them. Uh, it's not because Jesus had actually abandoned his people for a season, it was because Israel had a distorted vision of Jesus. They had a, a misshaped idea of his ways and purposes. And if they were going to learn to see Jesus well and truly and confidently, then they had to have a spiritual LASIK surgery on the eyes of their hearts. Um, I'm not totally sure about now, but I know that when LASIK surgery started, in order for you to see clearly after they'd taken the laser and trimmed your eye so that it was the right shape to let light in, that you had to keep eye patches over your eyes for a day or so so that it could heal properly. So before you could have healed vision, you had to be in darkness for a while. Um, maybe that's not the analogy that you need, uh, but it's the one you deserve. Sorry, all this talking about the dark nights is making me think about Christopher Nolan. He's not the hero we need. It's the hero we deserve or something like that. Anyway, uh, my point is in the dark night of the soul, you have to learn to seek Jesus and see him for who he is, not as who you want him to be. Because by the way, whoever you want Jesus to be is not as good as the Jesus who is. And in a dark night of the soul, you are no longer able to simply rest on some theological construct of Jesus because that constructed image of Jesus that we might have built, like Israel built, of a God who could be manipulated and controlled and actually who had to be manipulated and controlled in order to get good things from him, that is simply not sufficient. It's not who Jesus is. Dark nights of the soul force you to, to look and say, like, my hope was in my status or my stature or my career or whatever else in my flesh was, was, was clinging to something that wasn't Jesus. And it forces you in this sort of surgical way to rip it out, tear it out. So it's Jesus performing um, intense surgery so that you can seek him and find him as he is. Uh, in, the, in the dark night of the soul, Jesus is calling you to see him, to find him, to give up the idols under his name, or even just give up poor and false expectations. It's a powerful opportunity to come to a greater knowledge of Christ than you've ever had before. As you profoundly wrestle like Jacob in Genesis. Remember when he wrestles with God all 
night. Um, or like the psalmist in Psalm 88, with the real Jesus, in his real ways, in his real character, in his real presence. And that brings me to the second thing that Jesus does for us in a dark night of the soul, which is that he teaches us that even in our darkest hour and worst times, he is there. Uh, Jesus teaches us that uh, even when the eye patch is on and it's dark for us, the light is still there. That even when we feel lost, we are still in fact found. That we are never thrown away because Jesus is in fact, that is in truth, in reality, carrying us as the good shepherd through these hard times. In other words, it teaches us new ways to see and to be confident in Jesus. We learn to see him more fully and to really perceive and know the depth of his grace and the power of his forgiveness and the hope of his transformation and just how near and good he truly is. And this is seen so very powerfully, I think, by the psalmist in Psalm 89. So in Psalm 89, just after the dark night, Psalm 88, the psalmist is profoundly transformed by God's steadfast love and mercy. So immediately after Psalm 88, the darkness is my only friend, Psalm 89 begins this way. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, what makes Psalm 89 so powerful to me is not just the transformation itself, though that itself is powerful, but that this transformative vision of Jesus that sings of his steadfast love and his presence and his goodness, it happens while the psalmist is still in a time of hardship. Uh, Psalm 89 doesn't happen after everything was better. I went through this thing and I got my you know, I got my country song restored, right? I got my dog back, my truck back. All the things happen that are good again. Uh, that's not what happens. In fact, in verse 46 of Psalm 89, he prays, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? And in the Psalms, that prayer is a calming way of asking Jesus, How long is this going to last? This is actually a prayer of hope. The psalmist now knows that there's an end and that Jesus is there and that Hope is real and that God's steadfast love is in fact with him. The darkness is no longer his only friend because he's learned to see Jesus more clearly. He's learned to see that Jesus is truly there with him in his glory working. And again, remember Psalm 89 is not a transition from a dark night of the soul to peaceful bliss. It's a transition from a dark night of the soul to a difficult season. And that transition could only happen because he sought the living Christ. And as promised, he found him. Those who seek me will find me. And now the psalmist knows how truly near and glorious Jesus is. My friends, if you're in a dark night of the soul, or if you know someone who is, uh, God understands the depth of despair. He understands the, the difficulty and the sorrow and the fear and the feelings. But he doesn't say to you, you're right, give up. He says, look for me. Look for Jesus. Because you will find me. And the Jesus you will find will be better than the Jesus you don't understand. Because the Jesus you don't understand isn't the full Christ. Turn your eyes to Christ and try and seek him. And beloved, if you have friends who are in the dark night of the soul, 
Help them look for Jesus. Help them see him in scripture. Help them see him in their life. Help them give up false conceptions of Jesus or fill in the incomplete picture they have of him so that they can have the confidence that comes from more truly knowing the presence of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. Help them know that Jesus is here. He is with us and that there is always hope because our God will always be found by those who seek him and he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we pray for those who may be experiencing a dark night of the soul. We ask that you would help them to see Jesus, to know his nearness, and so have the hope of the gospel again. And Father, we pray that you would also help us to help each other see Jesus. Help us to give each other the hope of the gospel and the assurance of Christ's presence. So that even if we remain in difficult circumstances, we would know the glorious nearness of Christ. And so pray and live as those who have the sure hope of salvation. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.